and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Afternoon, everyone. Afternoon. Well, it's a great service uh, this morning. We look forward to the service right through the semester. The faculty and the staff of the college think of the students as the fruit of our labours. So it's really encouraging for us all to meet together as a community and uh, to send you all out. Got my celebratory tie on. Some people are sneering at it already, but it <laughs> kind of matches the, uh, the work there. Principals have feelings too. Now, the passage before us, and you keep it open please, is a very famous one of course. It, it may well be the most influential passage in all of scripture because it went from a tiny band of uh, confused and frightened disciples to a worldwide Christendom, a major faith across our world. And with students leaving the college, I think there's no better thing than for us to hear afresh the commission that Jesus gave to his disciples. But because it's so familiar, it's the kind of passage we easily skip over. So I think uh, we need to take our time and uh, uh, observe it carefully. Uh, without doubt, Matthew's Great Commission is the kind of peak of his gospel. It's a great ending as well as a Great Commission, and it recalls many parts of uh, Matthew that precede it, the earlier parts and then even the early part of the Bible. So to really hear this, you've, you've got to start in Genesis really and start reading and then you'll get here and it'll make a lot more sense. As I tell students in class, you need to read a book like Matthew like a snowball instead of like a bowling ball so that you gather up with you uh, everything that's gone before as you move along. Indeed, the Great Commission is a mountaintop passage. It takes place on a mountaintop, you will have noticed in verse 16. But there are other mountains in Matthew, just to demonstrate what I'm talking about. Um, there was, of course, the temptations of Jesus uh, which took place, at least in part, on a mountaintop. Uh, then there was the Sermon on the Mount, which happened on a mount. And then there was the Transfiguration, which was also on a mount. And I think our passage recalls each of these, just to uh, give you examples. So the temptation of Jesus, Jesus was offered all rule and authority by Satan. And that would have been a hollow victory, and he uh, resists that. But now he gets all rule and authority on another mountain. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is recalled in our passage when Jesus says, teach them all that I've commanded you. And the five sermons that we've listened to this semester from uh, faculty expositions uh, are what Jesus has in mind. Well, not the sermons, but uh, the passages. And then the Transfiguration, of course, is on a mountain again. And uh, it's a puzzling passage, but the way I would think about it is it's, it's, we, we see Jesus as he really is. And here... After his resurrection, in Matthew 28, again, we see him as he really is. Now, the typical understanding of the Great Commission is that it's about the disciples and us, uh, by implication, being given a daunting task and being told to get on with it. But I actually think that's a mistake because the Great Commission is not in the first instance about us, but it's about Jesus. It's, uh, it's primarily about Jesus, and as a, com as a commission, it only makes sense when you read it that way. To read it any other way, we're tempted to do one or two things. To despair at the enormity of the task, or to kind of water it down, and maybe even to ignore it. So what do we learn 
about Jesus in the Great Commission. Three things, sermon after all, but I think there are actually three things. So three things. The first is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. So we see that in four ways in this short passage. First of all, he gets worshipped in verse 17. Uh, verse 17 says, When they saw him, they worshipped him. Now there are other points in the Gospel of Matthew where people fall before Jesus and uh, the so-called supplicants. They're asking for something from Jesus, some forgiveness or some healing. And it's not necessarily clear in those passages whether he's being worshipped in the full sense of uh, the divine, but it's only three times in Matthew's gospel that the verb to worship is used with reference to Jesus, and I found that out through uh, the use of a concordance, by the way. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, they are these. So in chapter 14 it says, this is just after he calmed the sea, those who are in the boat worshipped him. And notice what it says, truly you are the son of God. So to worship Jesus is to recognise him as the Son of God. And then earlier in our chapter, chapter 28, verse 9, the risen Jesus is greeted. They came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. So such worship is a recognition that Jesus is divine. And we see that elsewhere in Scripture. So in Revelation 1, John uh, uh, the seer, as we were seeing this morning in one of our classes, uh, falls at Jesus' feet as though dead. Now what's interesting is, later on in Revelation, someone else falls at someone else's feet. In Revelation 19, the author falls before the feet of the angel and uh, the angel says, don't do that, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Anyone know the next two words? Worship God. Only God can be worshipped. This is the testimony of all of Scripture and yet in Matthew 28, we find the disciples worship Jesus. So the worship of Jesus in Matthew 28 confirms what was told to us in Matthew 1.23, remember our snowball, uh, and that is that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. In, back in Matthew 1, you're kind of thinking, yeah, maybe. Maybe that's just a title, you know, it's quite a nice name for Jesus. But we look back and we think, no, this is actually true. Jesus is God. More briefly, three other notes in our passage confirm that Jesus is God. In verse 20, he says, I will be with you always. And again, if you look across Scripture, that's what God says. God says, I will be with you always in certain contexts. We'll return to that in a few moments. And then uh, down in uh, verse 19, it says, To baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not musical, but this is uh, kind of a riff that uh, Trinitarian theologians have picked up and turned into whole albums. Uh, if, if this is what excites someone like Scott Harrow, I reckon. In the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Three divine identities, but just one name. Whew, that's really interesting, isn't it? Well, at least Scott would think so. Anyway, <laughs> and he, he'd be right. <laughs> So um, Jesus is put on a par with the Father and the Spirit. And right throughout Scripture, the Father and the Spirit are God. So Jesus is God. And then fourthly, it says right at the beginning of our passage that all authority in heaven and earth, well, in the middle actually, verse 18, has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. 
This picks up a passage from the Old Testament that the early Christians loved, of course, uh, Daniel chapter 7, where it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, one of Jesus' favourite self-designations, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given, notice this, authority, glory, sovereign power. Notice the next bit. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. It's deafening hearing the resonances between that passage and this one, isn't it? And they confirm that Jesus is God. Now, there's an important implication for us in the fact that the commission comes from Jesus, who is God. Because, uh, let's face it, when you get an instruction from a peer, you think, oh, maybe I'll do that, maybe I won't. Uh, if you get uh, uh, an instruction from someone in the office nearby, you think, oh, yeah, I'll get around to that if I have time. But if you get instruction from the boss, this, this is kind of embarrassing because I'm, I'm part of the illustration. Um, <laughs> then uh, you, you, you hop to it, or at least in theory. <laughs> there was a hint to the staff and faculty, actually. <laughs> but in this case, the Great Commission comes from a very high place, the highest, in fact, from Jesus, who is God. And when God comes along in the Old Testament and uh, summons someone, there's a clear thing you're meant to do. You're meant to say, here I am, send me. That's what it says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. So this is how we're meant to respond to the Great Commission because it tells us very clearly that Jesus is God. The Great Commission is not some polite request for you to consider. It's issued by the Lord Jesus, who is himself God. The second thing we learn from the Great Commission about Jesus is that Jesus rules because that's really what, what we're seeing here. All authority has been given to him. It, it draws, all of the Gospels have this idea, John Less, but the Synoptic Gospels, of the Kingdom of God. And the Kingdom of God has now come into existence through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He is the Lord. And this contrasts again back to Satan's temptation where he was given the opportunity to rule the world as it is his inheritance. But it would have been a hollow triumph. So instead, Jesus has defeated death and the devil and with this decisive victory in place he's going on to defeat sin and the flesh and the devil and death forever. And it's not your average uh, um, um, battle because it's going to be won not by force or coercion but by love. But the really disturbing thing about this fact that Jesus is ruling is that he's going to do it through the disciples by making disciples, by them baptizing and teaching, bringing people to faith and obedience. Through us, Jesus rules and brings his kingdom uh, to be fully manifested on earth. So to those who are graduating, heading off with more time to serve than you've had in the last few years, I presume, uh, no matter if it's a church, a school, overseas mission, back to the workforce or whatever, this is a word for you. Who are you again? Hands up. Who's, uh, so you can listen in the rest of you, just as it's kind of fits the passage though, doesn't it? Because we're kind of listening in on Jesus talking to the disciples. So there's a bit of listening in happening. But to you people, when, when I think of you and look uh, past your eyes, um, I see uh, a couple of sorts of things happening. You're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. 
all excited about heading off. So when they get up later to give their little testimonies in a moment, check out their bushy tails. <laughs> um, but, some of, but there's also a little bit of trepidation, isn't there? A little bit of anxiety about the work ahead. And I think both responses are right. We should be optimistic about our opportunities to serve, the great honour of serving the Lord Jesus and bringing people to faith. There's nothing better for anyone than to come to faith and to have that salvation about which we just sang uh, with such uh, enthusiasm. But there are at least three reasons why you might feel a little bit unnerved and uh, hesitant. One would be the enormity of the task. Uh, another would be inevitable opposition because Jesus himself faced opposition. And he said, if the world hated me, it will hate you. And even in scripture where you find someone with a great opportunity for ministry, fruitful ministry like Paul, he says, a wide door was opened for me. Anyone know the rest? But there were many adversaries. So we're to expect opposition when we go into ministry. It's a sobering thing. And the other thing is experience. I mean, those of us who have been around a while, I think it'd be interesting to talk to some of the um, older members of faculty. I, I can't think of anyone I know in Christian ministry who hasn't faced serious problems and uh, burdens in their work. And make no mistake, to obey this commission is a daunting task. Notice the alls, where to teach all the nations, all that Jesus taught. And we're not just to evangelize, we're to make disciples, to bring everyone to maturity in Christ. That's the goal. That's kind of the executive summary of every Christian's work. Make disciples. Uh, so if we don't feel some hesitation, we haven't really got what we're about to enter into. Even among the disciples, there was some hesitation felt. You've got that really odd note struck at the end of verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some were hesitant, you could translate it. And there may be all sorts of reasons. Maybe they felt overwhelmed. Uh, maybe they felt unsure. It's certainly a, a mark of the authenticity of the passage, isn't it? If, if you were making this up, you wouldn't slip that in there. <laughs> um, um, some might, might have doubted, is, is this truly Jesus, the Lord? Um, should we actually worship him? I think there was probably some doubt and hesitation too about what he was about to tell them. And the key, of course, is the third all in the passage, namely that all authority has been given to Jesus. So we have no choice. The commander-in-chief has given us his marching orders. But the third, and I think really comforting thing here, that Jesus, we learn about Jesus from the Great Commission, is that he promises to be with us uh, when we obey him and commit ourselves to fulfilling the commission. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now this is often taken as a note of comfort. It's kind of uh, life's hard and Jesus promises to come along and lick our wounds and to hold our hand and, all, and, and to be there with us, to um, encourage us. I don't, I don't think that's the point here. Um, there are other parts of scripture that promise that, don't get me wrong, but that's not the point here. The point is this massive daunting task has been given to the disciples and they would have been wondering how on earth are we going to achieve it? And Jesus says, I'm coming along to make your mission successful. And as you'll know from class two, usage determines meaning. And the usage of I'm with you always throughout scripture is always in these contexts 
of a battle or some daunting task that God promises to come along for. Joshua chapter 1. As I was with Moses, Joshua is about to enter the promised land, facing terrible battles ahead. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's an echo of Jesus is echoing these Old Testament promises. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Another example, Deuteronomy 31, when they're about to enter the land, having had the kind of uh, segue through the desert uh, for a while, uh, uh, Moses says, the Lord will deliver them to you, your enemies, and you must do to them all that I've commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or terrified because of them. Why? For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Same point with, with Jesus. Over in Acts, Jesus makes this very promise to Paul. One night when Paul was feeling disturbed about his abilities to fulfill his commission, this is what happened. The Lord Jesus spoke to Paul in a vision. Acts 9.18. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. So that's a great encouragement, friends, isn't it? that uh, the commission that the Lord Jesus gives us, he promises to come with us to fulfill. The Lord Jesus says to us as we face this tough task ahead, be strong and courageous. I will be with you and never leave you or forsake you. And the one who gives us this command to make disciples of all the nations is God himself. He's already ruling and he promises to come with us along the way. Well, it truly is a beautiful thing to